0: Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. The components manufacturing industry is the perfect example of a legacy niche that is ripe for disruption. But it has some interesting nuances to it, ones that Gearflow has worked hard to understand. Initially setting out as a two sided marketplace business, leveraging long tail search to drive distribution, Gearflow quickly learned that rather than going around or cutting out the middlemen, they needed to partner with them very closely and solve their problems as well. Their willingness to listen and adapt has worked, and today, GearFlow plays an increasingly large role in the space. In this conversation with GearFlow co founder Ben Preston, we discuss the origins of GearFlow, what he's learned about staying close to customers and staying nimble. How he builds businesses to satisfy multiple constituencies, how he pivoted to use his strength in organic search to drive marketing qualified leads versus sales, and much, much more. It's a very interesting conversation, one that I think has a lot of applications for many other founders that are exploring marketplace businesses. So with that, let's go to Ben. All right, Ben, thank you so much for being here. Really excited to do this with you. It's been fun to watch the GearFlow journey maybe not from like the complete beginning but but from pretty early pretty on. close yeah so it's been it's been cool to to see that congrats on the recent raise as well why don't we get started though back all the way up to the beginning and maybe talk a little bit about the genesis of GearFlow and kind of where the idea came from
1: yeah sure so yeah so i took your class i would say 2019 and we started end of 2018 so Pretty close to the beginning. So the genesis is, so my business partner, Luke, his family business is a construction equipment dealer here in the Chicago area. So he worked for his family business for a while. I was an ad tech at the time when we connected, but the genesis of the idea was their business, their family business is all about renting equipment. So therefore, when that equipment is down or broken down, it's their largest cost. So that's downtime, right? What he found was that a $10 part or lack thereof, was causing tens of thousands of dollars of lost revenue, downtime. And it was a huge pain for him to get the parts to get their equipment running, never mind the actual end customers that they were serving with mixed fleets. So the genesis was really, man, a $10 part shouldn't cause a $10,000 problem. Let's open up access to these part suppliers in a way that really works for the industry. Yeah. Um, so that was how we, we got going to the end of 2018. And we've learned a ton along the way the last four years. So have to get, dig into
2: that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess, first of all, just to, just to kind of point out the pain just a little bit, make it a little bit more acute. Obviously, it's a marketplace business, lots of examples of that. And one of the questions that is always interesting to me is, what were the dynamics between the two parties that prevented something like this from existing
1: prior? Does that make any sense? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so it's a great question because we went in with preconceived notions around what the industry needed which is the pain really stems from, think of an end customer, which is a contractor. They could be doing excavation or paving or what have you. They have a mix, what's called a mixed fleet of of equipment. So they're relying on multiple brands of equipment to get their job done. So therefore relying on multiple different part suppliers or dealers to get the parts they need and the service they need to keep that equipment running. What we assumed was, okay, the industry needs a marketplace where suppliers upload We find all these parts suppliers around the country, they upload their parts listings, buyers are gonna go Google those, find them on the marketplace, check out with their credit card, and it's gonna be like an Amazon-like experience, right? But the more we dug into it, there was an element of that, but that is the polar opposite of how parts are bought today. The reason this has not existed is because parts are not bought like paper towels. There is a heavy reliance on the dealer and when it took us a while to get here, but what we found is really, it's the it's almost like a psychological challenge, right? So if I'm a end customer and I'm a mechanic and there's 12 different brands of equipment and all of them have a different specialty and I'm on the line to get that equipment back up and running, I'm going to make sure I call my dealer who's the expert on Bobcat to make sure that I am getting the right parts. I need to get that Bobcat up and running the first time, hmm. right? So this human element of having shared accountability with a dealer and someone that I've been trusting for 10 years is irreplaceable. So the Amazon type model was and will always be, in our opinion, secondary option, right? Mm-hmm. So I call my dealer, they say, sorry, I'm out, especially now with supply chain issues. Then I go try to scramble to figure it out on my on my own. Mm-hmm. But we found Amazon has a 33% return rate in our category. And there's this whole, Forcing an industry into preconceived notions around what a marketplace should be, hmm. and we had to reverse it. We had to really learn it close to customers on how they, what their workflow is, how parts are bought and sold today, and what are the elements that really drive that transaction to figure out how a marketplace needs to fit with the industry. And I think that's why this hasn't come to fruition today because the nuances are huge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We really need a platform.
2: You
0: yeah. That. so so you're it seems like the relationship with the dealer is a pretty important one for you all to be successful um mm-hmm. how did you navigate that because like there's lots of stories in other types of marketplace businesses where the marketplace the, the company goes in suggesting altruism suggesting we're going to play nice and mm-hmm. then as they acquire power they start to squeeze the middle 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 persons out of the equation or whatever it is and i think as a result of that especially like in a b2b kind of context people have gotten a little bit savvy to that so Mm -hmm. how did you go through the process of building relationships with the dealers what were the pain points maybe that the dealers had that you were able to help out with like how did that whole process go where they were able to kind of see like you're not trying to box them out but you're trying to be helpful to the ecosystem
1: so I'll tell you, that's the number one perception challenge that we're constantly battling because like a lot of these industrial type of businesses, you we it's called the equipment triangle in construction where you have equipment manufacturers, they sell through dealers, dealers support end customers, right? Okay. So we needed to figure out how do we support all three layers or else if one doesn't play ball, then we're we're out of right. luck. So first of all, it certainly helps that my partner Luke his family business is a dealer, right? So we can go in and say, hey, if we were built this, if we built this to cut up the dealer, he'd be disowned. So (laughs) that level of trust is so important, right? I think the number one thing that tech companies have a hard time with is they say, hey, I'm from tech and we're here to disrupt construction and save the day. I'm here to save you, yeah. Exactly, listen to us how things should be done, right? That's where walls go up. So our number one thing was trust. We had to establish trust with each of the three layers and continue to establish trust with each of the three layers. And to your point, it wasn't just about what the customer wants. It's not just about what the manufacturer wants. It's also what the dealer wants and what are their pains. And what we learned is that the biggest reason that dealers lose business is communication problems and miscommunication. So if you think about it, we have actually a a customer, a bigger customer that across their whole organization, they cut 11,000 purchase orders a month. So the if you think about the volume and these are high urgent, like their equipment's down, these are high yeah, urgency yeah. tensions are high requests into their dealers. Yeah. So from dealer's perspective, they're getting this influx of inbound requests and their relationship with that customer is the business, right? It's a service relationship. That's where they make their money. And mm-hmm. these, that loyalty comes from. So we had to really understand what were the communication breakdowns and the operational inefficiencies on the dealer side that we can really help, turn into sales enablement tools to differentiate with those end customers to provide a better relationship in order for this to all work, right? So it really, it took and continues to take tons of learning and listening on each element of the supply chain on how their workflow is done in their process to really start to understand what needs to be built and continue to be built for this problem. How did you go about...
0: I'm familiar with some of the other courses that you took. I'm familiar with kind of, I think, how you see the world. And as you've already stated, being close to the customer and and listening and incorporating that feedback is super important. How did you go about building early versions of the product to try to solve mm-hmm. this problem? How did you stay agile kind of in the early days? What were some of the maybe the practices or yeah. even tools that you used? Like How did you... Because when you when you write code, to a certain degree, it's a little bit like concrete. It's difficult to change. So, like, how did you, given that you knew that there are these three parties that I have to try to satisfy and that I don't totally
1: know what that ideal solution is yet, how did you go about doing that? Mm-hmm. So, if I wish I could say that everything was intentional, retroactively, <laughs> but we led with the philosophy of we're going to build this plane as we fly it. So. I, so my partner and I, we quit our jobs to go on this thing full-time end of 2018. At the same mm-hmm. time, I went night school at at Kellogg. Yeah. The first what, iteration was, we're going to allow parts to be uploaded and sold on a marketplace. That's the business. It's going to be huge, right? We had all these notions <laughs> like, hey, it works in all these other places. Yeah. Of course, we're going to want to do it that way. Yeah. The more we dug into it, the more we're like, hmm, crap. Suppliers need to be self-sufficient on this thing right? We need to build tools for suppliers, almost like a Shopify light type of platform, because a lot of these guys are used to selling off of a brochure in their local area. So then we built those tools. And we're like, as soon as we get those tools out, man, this thing's going to explode because then all these suppliers are going to sign up. They're totally self-sufficient. Then we got that out. And it first attracted a certain type of supplier, not all suppliers. So we had to really peel back the layer of, okay, who are suppliers? We have your aftermarket component level, like mom and pa tire shop down in Texas, all the way up to Case New Holland that manufactures equipment. They have a million parts that they sell through 700 dealers. So those two organizations are massively different, right? So we started to uncover the nuances with the suppliers. But then what we learned is that buyers were coming in. They were buying once, buying maybe twice, leaving fantastic reviews. Our MPS scores were through the roof, but they wouldn't come back. Like what the hell is going on here? Then it was hitting the phones, and we're again this whole building the plans we fly it. We were our only lever we could pull was get out there, like get out to expos, get out to customers, interview these customers and learn. And we learned is the whole marketplace experience we spend so much time building. That's not how they want to buy parts. Yeah, we will. We learn we will never be their primary option if this is their experience, right? Because what they're used to is saying, hey, why would I use you guys if I'm just, I am just call my dealer, right? Yeah. I just say what equipment it's for, the parts I need, and then they send it back to me. So that's when we had to build buyer software around that workflow. So it's non-disruptive, right? And we needed a, yeah. a way where they could come in and trial it. And yeah. now, so we built those tools, we're like, man, once those guys have these tools, then they're going to keep coming back and keep going back and going. Then we hit the next step, which is they're keep coming back, but they're only using us for the hard to find parts and the parts that their dealers might not have because their primary options are not on gear flow. So we had to build tools for them to then invite their dealers to participate in a very cohesive manner that respects the relationship, their custom pricing, all that. Of course, it kicks off these network effects that, like I said, I would love to say that we were genius and predicted this, but now it's opening us a whole Pandora's box on what the dealers need for this to work. So I think it's. The The lesson that we've learned is lean, 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 and like build, learn, iterate in this sort of weekly cycle, we release product every day. And it's imperfect. And it's it's basically if we're not, we're robbing ourselves from the opportunity to learn. And I think the construction industry, so a stat for you is that they are construction industry is the second furthest laggards in digitization. And coupled with McKinsey study shows that we were by, there's a measure of productivity as dollars or revenue per labor hour worked. We are in construction less productive by that measure than we were 30 years ago, where the rest of the economy is up 3x in that same measure because of slack and productivity tools and all these things that we're advancing forward. So our hypothesis here is no one has spent the time Learning and listening to what the industry truly needs and how it works with their process. And everyone's trying to force them into preconceived notions of what they need that works elsewhere. So our whole philosophy of we're going to build the plan as we fly it. We're going to be, we're going to be comfortable with uncomfortable, imperfect product all sure. with an opportunity to learn and really lead with this listening and humility, but combined with this sort of will to just yeah. keep going and keep driving. So that's the four years in a nutshell. Got it. the So, I mean, you have a lot of humility around things, but if you were to
0: talk to yourself from four years ago, knowing what you know now, or if someone were to come to you in a different vertical, let's say, and there's a lot of industries where there's like a middle per, there's a dealer kind of model, right? And mm-hmm. um, we have similar types of dynamics. What would, other than staying close to the customer and kind of being agile, like... Is there an order of operations like when you look at like a three-sided marketplace, like if you were to do it again, would you have still built, would you still have tried to solve the problems in the same order? Are there any shortcuts that you now know that you could have taken where it's like when you have a three-sided kind of market like this or a dealer type model, it's probably safe to say that other industries that are similar would probably have these similar types of problems. And so I would go do this. Sooner mm-hmm. than I did. Like, What lessons would you give to somebody else trying to do something in a similar type of vertical?
1: Yeah, so I, get, I do talk to a lot of companies in marketplace-type businesses, and yeah. a couple of lessons we learned. So one that I think stuck with us, it's not my quote, I'm blanking on who the quote might be a Malcolm Gladwell thing, but it was very few companies can do both of these. Most companies have to choose. You're either going to do a lot for a few number of people, or you're going to do a little for a lot of people. And again, very few can do both. I wish we learned that lesson from early, early on. Um, Mm -hmm. because I think as starry eyed, first time entrepreneurs, we're trying to blow the ocean and trying to do everything for all people. The second piece and a marketplace business specifically that we actually coincidentally did right was as far as your order of operations question goes, uh, in construction specifically, you need a Trojan horse. And this was, this is something that, so brick and mortar ventures, Alice Long over there wrote a whole white paper on what's your Trojan horse. Our Trojan horse was, we're not cold calling subcontractors to sell them on software. They were coming to us because they Googled a part mm. and they were coming to us because they bought a part. Mm. Once they came in and bought a part, we popped out of the Trojan horse and said, here's some software that can help. You. Yeah. So that was a tremendous tool for us because this order operations that I laid out that kind of mapped out in this unintentional sort of clunky plane that's sort of about to hit the ground. and We bring it back up and about to hit the ground again and bring it back up is we got a lot of long tail parts up yep. on the marketplace by all of these suppliers that are locked offline that mm-hmm. attracted thousands of customers Googling part numbers. Now, not all, So now we have customers that range from NASA has bought from us down to your one man landscaping guy in the middle of Texas.
0: I I remember in the beginning that was when you were wanting to be the Amazon for parts, like you you saw this yeah. opportunity here with this long tail. It sounds like even though the maybe not business model, but some of the mechanics of it changed, yeah. that early decision and some of the infrastructure that you built around that still paid dividends. It just was less of a, like you said, long tail thing where we're gonna have hundreds of thousands of customers. And it's more of like here's a t here's a way to cheaply generate like marketing qualified
1: leads that we then elevate into like more of a direct spot field. on yeah, spot interesting. on. So if we had thought of the marketplace as a lead generator to start, as opposed to the business, we probably would have maybe gotten to this point a little faster with less money spent, but alas. So th- what it did present us with though, is the widest spectrum of equipment owner, bus- equipment owners and businesses. And it afforded us a CRM of, of businesses from small to large different sectors and uncover where if we're going to do uh, really this problem is really like we realize that the industry needs a platform that does a lot for a little amount of people. So who is that little amount of people or companies? So it gave us the opportunity to figure out who has the most palpable pain here. And what we found is that there is a ton of pain with the small to mid mid-sized guys, but a lot of those guys have, have fewer pieces of equipment. So they're not buying parts enough for this to be a really painful thing for them. Yeah, Can we still serve them? Absolutely. But I think it stops at a certain point where really that's the starting point for these larger organizations where the more volume, the larger they are, the more equipment they have, more equipment they have, the more chaos is introduced, more chaos comes with more pain. So that's really where we realized the opportunity was most recently is we, it's, we're parts at the center of a productivity issue for these mid to large size end users. Mm -hmm. And their margin, they have no room for error on their job sites. So when they have a situation like parts, that's at the center of a productivity issue, and that productivity is death by thousand cuts, not just because they can't get the parts, but because of human error and lack of reporting and time it takes to cut POs and all of these things, we realized that that was where we had to drive our attention to it. So.
0: Got it. Are there any nuances that you discovered when you're dealing with like, when you're, when you're, when you're entering into a space that has a dealer type of model, mm-hmm. are there nuances that are important to keep in mind? So things like the degree of price transparency, like there's, it seems like there's a reason why they always are like, call us for information and stuff yep. like that. Like, What have you learned maybe about some of the nuances of how they do business and how one can try to map to that as as, as much as
1: possible through digital? For sure. So yes, there are a lot of nuances that we've come across. One assumption that was incorrect was that, hey, if there are if there's a single brand of equipment. Um I won't name names. Single brand of equipment, let's say they have fifty dealer groups across the country. You assume, oh, they all have the same logo on the front of their building. They probably all play nice with each other, right? So that's really where what's called I order apart from my local dealer, they don't have it. They have access to the dealer network inventory. Hmm. However, Everyone's territory restricted and they have to look, look after theirs, right? It's about their longstanding customers in their territory before they worry about anyone else. Yeah. So this, this notion that there was this niceties amongst dealers all under one group. It's actually, it can be pretty dog eat dog world and almost really tense, right? Because wow. especially when part supply chain is super restricted becomes really territorial. So. That's one thing that we had to figure out is how do we help these dealers protect their territories? How do we allow them to really be that service layer to these end customers and own the aftermarket life cycle of the customers beyond the the sale of the equipment and have Mm -hmm. visibility into that life cycle through digital and almost provide them an opportunity to get out in front of the customer's needs on parts before they know they need them. All these things that tech technology really helps enable but we couldn't build it in a way that opened them up to risk that right now they don't have, right? Cause they're not, they don't have, they're not on a marketplace. So if we built this in a way where there are no territory restrictions in this one example, then they're opening themselves up to way more risk than it's worth pursuing. Yeah. And so it goes back to yeah. this whole, our, I think our biggest competition is this reverting to the status quo. If we feel too new, too, too disruptive, too risky to how they currently operate, we have no shot. Um, so the territory restrictions is one example that we had to learn to figure out how do we fit as this layer over the existing supply chain and how it all operates together versus trying mm-hmm. to fit that supply chain into this open marketplace concept.
2: Yeah, kind it. of it makes a lot of sense. The,
0: the, I'd be curious again, like if you were giving advice to folks, because like not, every, not every business has the ability to go after long tail search as a channel whether it's right. for direct to close the deal directly or even as, or, or as a lead gen thing. But when one does have one, I mean, it was one of the things I got excited about when you were doing your project it was like, Oh, this yeah. there's a unique opportunity here. What did you learn? I guess, or what would you, what advice would you give to somebody having successfully done it? Um, mm-hmm. Even though you had to pivot on like what the call to action is, mm-hmm. uh, what advice would you give to another company that is thinking that there might be a similar long tail search opportunity and how, how to tackle that? How to go after it? Because yeah. if you can own that channel, it's pretty
1: powerful. Yeah, for us, I mean, it's been a blessing and a curse, right? Because Google inherently does not like three us dumping three thousand parts URLs onto Google, right? So it's come with its unique challenges of being this long tail parts marketplace. But I'd yeah. say a, a little bit of a, a bit of an off road from your hitting on your same question yeah. is where content we found to be the most impactful for our business, had very little to do actually with the Google's favorability of our site. It actually had everything to do with using content that we're aligned with to build trust within the prospective customers and users of the platform. And I'll give you examples. So construction is a giant network of networks. Everyone's in various associations. There are about 30 different associations when it comes to there's an association for dealer groups, there's an association for small dealers, for OEMs, for subcontractors, for GCs, like there's a ton of them. And all these associations are all around best practice sharing. We found there is a major lack of content around that drives education within these various associations, specifically as it relates to things like digital process enablement, things of that nature. So we actually invested early on on content to align ourselves with these associations, and we actually partnered with, literally, cold called basically the editors of the publications that go out into each of these associations. So they'll be like Pro Contractors Rental or Diesel Engine Magazine, and they're these guys are have a hard job. They are a one person show to produce a magazine on a monthly basis, so they're starved for content. So we yeah. actually developed a ton of content that broke down this trust barrier like yeah. that we originally were facing. And we are aligned in the best interest with this association to the point where now, literally two weeks ago, we were with the Association of Equipment Management Professionals and we were leading a new concept on education, which is something they, they called the shop talk lounges, which allowed us to be in a room leading a conversation around a circle of couches with 15 uh, fleet managers, which are the, the decision makers over parts and equipment. And we were partnered with this association on leading education there, which grants us unprecedented access to what the industry needs, prospective customers and the whole bit. So the long tail yeah. SEO piece is an ongoing technical SEO opportunity, but also challenge. And it comes with yeah. a lot of learning, pain and suffering. But I think yeah. for entrepreneurs that are just getting going, leaning yeah. into what opens up access to networks and groups and allows you to be a trusted confidant in your domain content has been the number one way that we've been able to get there
0: any nuance or any any best practices you've learned in cuz again like on the B2B side every every almost every industry has a similar setup and and mm-hmm. what what else have you learned about working with these associations whether it's the trade show stuff or what mm-hmm. how how you It seems like it's really easy to abuse that relationship, right? And Mm -hmm. and to try to make the ask through your content or be a little bit more hard sell than they potentially want. So it seems like that would Mm -hmm. be and if you abuse that relationship or 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 that relationship sours, now you're locked out of those those, and not that many gatekeepers, right? So like anything you've learned about like
1: maximizing that relationship and creating as much value for them as possible. For sure. So, the way to abuse those relationships is to use that as an opportunity to sell. These guys sniff that out right away. So, they get sold to all the time. And it's this is how you should do things. These are the features you should use. This is how we solve your problems. Our approach, it went coincidentally a page out of Dave Schoenthal's book, The Human Element, which I was just skimming through literally right before this call around co designing. Our best tool has been using the partnering with these associations on education the education is getting us access to the customers to learn and listen what their pains are and what they need excavating that through just asking questions around and having them basically self-discover what their needs are and then working with them on same side of the table co-designing a platform that works for them right that has and and that's true it's it's a it's not Sort of a, a strategic decision. I mean, that is the best case scenario, I think, for any tech company and customer. If you're on the same side of the table, co-designing a platform that works for them, as opposed to opposite sides of the table trying to sell them to use your solution, then that's where the the barriers come up. So the association, the content, all of this like partnership has been about building trust, and that's what's allowed us to design really a platform that's worked for them. And they, you can pick up on that, and even if you're to my earlier point, even if we are 10% of the way there, we align on, hey, these 10 customers, here is the vision that you all collectively want to get at. That's the carrot on the stick. We are the best partner to work with you towards that vision. Let's work together on making this work for you and your dealer. So that's where back to your dealer question, we have made, we have created tremendous allies and actual f- personal friendships with these customers that we're working with. They are using yeah. our platform for the sort of 10%, but they are our champion to get participation with their dealers so all three of us can now sit across the table and talk about how this works and then get their OEM into the fold and have all four of us talk about it. So it's been really powerful to align on this idea of we're going to co-design this with our customers in a way that's scalable, right? We're not talking about building being a custom software shop, but that's where, in my opinion, one of our advisors, Sam Shank, who's founder of Hotel Tonight, we were this is sort of an aside, but we were thinking like we need to hire a head of product. We don't have anyone over product management. And he asked a couple of questions. He's like, well, who's doing it now? And I said, I am. And he's like, well, do you like it? He said, yeah, I love it. And he's like, well, there you go. He's like, the founder should always be the head of product. And if you're head of pro- I come from a sales background. Sure. I had to learn Jira, but it's but sales and product go hand in hand because if I'm out there talking to customers and then I'm also learning on what needs to be built. I mean, you can't really find a better combination. So yeah. long way of answering your question, the co-design piece as a way yeah. to work with these associations as opposed to selling yeah. has been our biggest strength.
0: Are there, are there any, I guess, again, ab- abstracted patterns that maybe you have observed in doing this that you would think, if I were, again, to go into a different industry that, again, has a three-sided kind of model? Mm-hmm. For example, in, in SaaS, uh, there's a common pattern of like, When you when you do when you move up to the enterprise level, there's a certain set of features that people tend to expect, right? Or things that that are really easy are easy wins that you kind of layer in on there. Is there anything that you've seen where you would say, like, if I were going into another space that also had like a dealer led model, it's a pretty safe bet these would be the three or four things that they care the most
2: about, like a
0: feature perspective.
1: Yeah. Question. So, yeah. So I would say it's, it's three things. It's access, communication, and visibility. So access as a customer and as a dealer, let's open up better access to each other, right? That's step one. If we can make it easier to access each other, then we both win, right? For us, we also say, hey, customer, We're letting, we're opening up access to not just the people you already work with, but also this world of suppliers that can help you if you need them. Right. So that was the first one was access. The second communication. I'd say we're not alone in that communication is done offline in our industry. Right. That's, I think, a universal problem behind a lot of these B2B marketplace. So learning what that requires on streamlining communication between. You as a buyer and the suppliers that you rely on to do your job has been the number two piece. So real time chat, notifications, all the things that would typically require a phone call, a email or what have you. So that's the second piece. For us, we've had to navigate things like, Hey, our people are not, our buyers are not usually behind a computer. They're out in the field. They're in low connectivity areas. They're on their truck. They're on their job site. A lot of these guys are working with teammates that might not be the most tech savvy folks. So how do we make this in a way that really works and meets them where they need to be met, right? And that's part of the co-design point. The third around visibility. When all this stuff is offline, regardless of the industry, it comes with chaos. And the chaos makes it really hard to see as a manager of said process, where am I breaking down, right? So for us, it was people aren't able to see how much am I spending per unit, per job, per person, per vendor, per part, over time so I can do things like catch cost anomalies and do things like I know what this data is telling me about how optimized my fleet of equipment is, or how if I might have operator error, I'm spending the same amount, I'm spending more money on two identical pieces of equipment. And one of that is because of a lot of damage and neglect parts, like little examples like that, if we right. can provide visibility to the folks that can get that data into actionable insights on how their organization is operating, I feel like those three things are universal. The mm. fourth that has been a huge value that was sort of an add-on as part of what we were doing. We didn't really see it was billing. So mm. consolidated billing turns out is a huge pain. We have one customer that said that they, they, she personally is responsible for paying 2000 invoices a week. So you can imagine cut that. If you can cut any time out of that, then you're not just yeah. helping the buyer the buyer is going to get slowed down. The decision-maker of your software is going to get slowed down by accounting, by the CFO, by operations, by, you have to uncover all the elements revolved on it. So we actually, in order to find these kind of common themes out as part of one of the association education sessions, we went in as opposed to us presenting what they should do. We actually Mm. flipped the script. We had a panel. So we had three customers join us on a panel and beforehand, we went through, to prep for this, we went through swim lane charts. So I don't know if you've seen that where it's basically Y-axis is all of the people or stakeholders involved in the process. X-axis is all the steps. And they had never done, one One of the three had done it with her organization. The other two hadn't. So we, I mean, talk about access, we mapped out together, talked to me about all the steps from the moment your equipment breaks down to when it gets back up. So that, we did that session with the, Association in that audience as sort of like a workshop type of thing to unveil un- all the people and processes that, you know, or in tech that's involved in the process. They were self identifying their bottlenecks in yeah. this process. And after doing that enough times, that's where we whittle it down to those three things and then tack on the invoicing and support. And I think those might be universal across yeah. the industrial sector, at least.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that you
0: the advice of your advisor and and just kind of relative to your, your passion have kind of become the head of product effectively, even though you didn't necessarily mm-hmm. have a background in it. I'd be curious, two things. One is any lessons you, because my understanding is neither of you are the, are, would be considered the technical co-founder necessarily. Right. So maybe what are some lessons you've learned about managing a business, managing a tech, mm-hmm. a tech platform where neither of you are technical? Because that's a common problem that I know comes up with founders that, Mm-hmm. So, how what did you learn about that? And then, secondly, how did you grow into the role of, of the effective like head of product? Any lessons mm-hmm. you were obviously staying close to the customer addresses a lot of that stuff. But mm-hmm. if you had like a unified theory of product development at this point, like what would what would it yeah. be? Ben's book.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm gonna. My book is inherited from RVP VP of engineering, so I'll share that. But okay. Um, yeah. Your first question on two technical co-founders without a cto how do you build software yeah we went through i would off the top of my head probably six different iterations of who was building our tech until we got to the team we have today which is
2: phenomenal Mm.
1: those each of those six iterations were maybe um one was almost worse than the other it's just as painful as the other you can't regardless of how i know it feels like Everyone that's a non-technical founder of a company that wants to build software feels like, well, man, the only lever I can pull is if I can spend money on an outsourced dev, then yeah, we can outsource this thing. You can't build a scalable company with outsourced tech. I don't know. It's really, really difficult. I maybe can't is a strong word, but it is really difficult. Right. If I yeah, was yeah. telling my 4 year ago self, find a CTO and co-founder, my four-year-old self would roll his eyes because that is the hardest thing to do as a non-tech founder to try to convince a talented software engineer to join you with no software, right? So I could explain all the iterations, but I might have to save that to the point where we're at today. So today, Mm -hmm. along those iterations, we have a team of only four engineers, and that's actually really intentional. And that was also driven by our VP of engineering, Torin Billups. Torin has been an absolute godsend. His philosophy really drove my product philosophy and that we work really well together on, which is this whole idea of build, learn, iterate, and mm-hmm. as short of a cycle as possible. And yeah. nothing in our organization waits longer than a week to get out. If uh, if it if we are building something that is a longer than a week scope, it's too big. Strip yeah. it down, yeah. cut it out, strip it down. And so that's his, and the other piece of his philosophy is that there is no such thing as backend and frontend devs. We have only full stack folks, and it should be about versatility, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone should be able to do anything and take ownership over the product that they're working on. Yeah. Um, and the third is there should be no product silo, engineering silo, right? Yeah. I think a lot of Organizations, from what I've been told through our engineers who have a lot of different experience yeah. and different yeah. teams, totally. is you become ticket takers, right? Yeah. And the last thing anyone, just personally for motivation, you don't want to be a ticket taker as an engineer. But second, you're robbing the organization from having more brain power behind business problems and priorities. So, the the number one, my product playbook is the number one. I can't code, so the the two things that I can do. To best support our engineering team is one, talk to customers like you said. I know it's like a beaten dead horse here, but
2: get but out. Most, I mean, like, it's customers.
1: shocking how many organizations don't do it, or don't talk. Do yeah, particularly product people, head of yeah. product, they're getting that information either quantitatively, which I think academia—that's the one direction that we might that they might steer entrepreneurs the wrong direction—is focus uh, yeah. on quantitative AB testing, do Google Ad. Test to say what landing page gets more yeah. attractions. Like, hey, if I'm gonna spend an equal amount of time and less money, I'm just getting out there. like We just got a booth with no product. We had a mocked up envision PDF clickable thing and we just got out there to an expo and talked to yep. maybe people. It's super uncomfortable, but the sales background maybe helps a little bit, but it's uncomfortable for anyone. So yeah, I would say that's the one thing. And then the second thing is if I can be the funnel of helping business priority on product. We have about you know, a backlog of probably 500 tickets. There's constant things that are needed. So I can be that sort of filter to then keep everyone focused on what's priority so they don't have to question that and have some sense of scope going into products and stay out in front of them. There's no sitting on hands wondering what's being built and why it's being built. So everyone has the autonomy to challenge me on that priority, the why we're building things. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's funny. So, yeah. I don't know if you remember, I mean, there was, we talked very briefly about like analytics and A-B testing, mm-hmm. but like almost, almost none. Cause it was like, mm-hmm. especially early stage, your analytics will tell you something's wrong, but they won't tell you why. And so you can yep. stumble along in the dark or you can go, but you know, so at the stage that you're at now, and especially if you're shipping every single week, what is the role of quality of quantitative? And are you embedding, what's your discipline around embedding, Event tracking or whatever it is, like how mm-hmm. do you how do you assess the effectiveness of an iteration when you're shipping on a weekly basis? How do you think about that stuff now?
1: Yeah, so we had to go through us. We had to define, which is interesting, being a marketplace business. We had to define what does our pipeline look like, and what are the stages in that pipeline, and how do we know? How are we measuring? Right. So we had to go through this whole process of setting up our HubSpot and the whole thing, and define what does a buyer process and pipeline look like. And we had to break it down to say, okay, since we're not we're not a software we're not a subscription business, so there's no like deal closed, they sign a subscription annual commitment. But there are there are really three sort of stage gates, if you will, of behavior change in our platform. And there are certain inflection points when they go through those changes. So for us, the the entry point that was super important for us to develop, we needed trialability by our buyers, an easy way that's non disruptive, and that is use us for hard to find parts. Right? Everyone has equipment down because they don't have parts. They they have parts they can't find. Use us for hard to find parts. So that's stage one. Once they add users, which we can measure. And we train their team, which is a sales measure. They add, they they want to then, they get used to the platform. We can see the velocity of activity coming out of that with the parts request that they're submitting. So we're measuring all of the activity in each of these accounts. The next stage is then they want to add their existing vendors. That's a huge moment because that goes from us being the secondary option to us being the primary option. Yeah. So at that stage, we get involved. That is, again, more qualitative. It's happening organically in the platform. People add vendors and stuff, but we swarm and make sure we're involved in the process, right? The third stage is as that's going, they want almost in parallel, very close. The distance between stage one and stage two is a little bit further than two to three. The third stage is they want integrations into their systems, which we love because that makes us harder than a heart transplant to replace, right? Sure. So we can go all the way to that step. That's how we're measuring it. And so we can see when activity starts to pick up because they start to organically add additional users. Once they organically add additional users, we reach out and say, hey, I see you guys add a bunch of users. Let's get a team training on the call or a mm-hmm. team training call. Then the fleet manager, maybe we instigate or they start adding their vendors. We see that and we swarm that stage two. Mm-hmm. Then in parallel, we're having t- calls with management talking about integrations in that stage three. And we've connected everything into Google Data Studio, so we can measure how many, how, what's the amount of money running through the pipes by organization, the amount of requests running by the pipes by organization by user, and we can actually start to build out real time cohort analysis and things like that. But it's working. Those are metrics for that work for our business. Yeah. I think the number one advice I would steer people away from is there's no one recipe, right? to LTV doesn't mean anything for certain people where it does to others like you have right. to have a data model and metrics that that inform you on how on your business specifically not fit your business to the recipe right yeah. so that's yeah. how we that's what we look at and how we measure uh, measure success and it's I, but it's an ongoing exercise so it yeah, yeah. solve it all I'd be really
0: curious about the integration piece so so you mentioned that the industry is kind of a laggard I would imagine that that probably means that some of the if it's like some of the other industries i've seen a proliferation of some of those platforms and then the openness of those platforms in terms of like the modern the modernness of their apis and documentation all that kind of stuff is a little bit hairy is that been accurate and if so how did you tackle the integration piece Knowing that the upside of getting stitched in was so valuable, but then on the other hand, it's like huge pain in the neck. The yeah. Vent, the, the 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 software providers maybe don't want to cooperate, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How did you, how did you think about that?
1: So you're spot on. First, every system, not every <laughs> most systems are developed 30 years ago. We actually yeah. had a customer using a system that they said, like, oh, what version are you on? They're like, version six. We're like, what version is it now? They're like, actually 13. So I was like, what year was version six released? They said 1997. <laughs> <laughs> so the number one thing that we look at, so people say everyone wants an integration. Of course. Yeah. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, we have an API. And yeah. without us at first, there's two things that we look at. It's one, what do you want to achieve with that? Right. What do you want to achieve with an integration? Yeah. First, so for us, what we've found that the and and I guess the second thing before I describe what we found is there has to be a pattern of that same objective, right? The last thing we want to do is go down the road of an integration with a one-off system for a one-off purpose. So what we found is that people very simply want to, at the stage that they create a work order, which is how labor and parts are all tracked, that kicks off a request into us and gives information about that unit and all the information about the work order at the time that they receive the parts we kick that information back into them for accounting purposes so we've established sort of a scope of what that looks like the Mm. second piece we aren't doing a ton of integrations right now we actually resist 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 because there is an order of operations to this an integration is useless if your dealers and your vendors aren't on board so what are all of the product bottlenecks or the marketing and sales perception bottlenecks, or our internal process bottlenecks that are preventing people from going through that stage first. Yeah. So until we see companies going through that stage and are past that stage, then we start to entertain the integration conversation. But you can't skip steps. You can't, we can't talk about integration with their system if they're not already starting to use the platform for hard to find parts or get other people on, right? Yeah. And It's funny because i I think the temptation is you get a couple bigger customers potentially starting to use the platform and our temptation is to foie gras that deal like what if we just spend two weeks on premise and just like get them going right yeah and do all sorts of hacky manual things to try to increase revenue but uh to some extent you can do some of those things but you have that you can't skip steps you have to Identify what your steps are for adoption and then guide people through that. And so our integration questions isn't always an outstanding one because we we don't we, we resist until it makes sense for that business and it makes sense for us to scale. And there's lots of different systems for lots of different objectives. So yeah. you have to identify what are the systems and the objectives of that integration before you go down that road, yeah. Yeah. particularly with third party tech. Yeah, that you're cust- you're not brought into by a customer. We try to avoid those for now. We we have we don't have a big enough team. Yeah, yeah. we have to have an army of integration yeah. to do it.
0: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You mentioned earlier supply chain impacts and things like mm-hmm. that. Like, was how did how did COVID impact your business? Was it a net positive because of some of the the, the problems being exacerbated for your clients, oh, yeah. or well, what did you what did you encounter as this is unfolded?
1: Yeah. So frankly, it was a net positive. It was a tailwind for the business. I think what it did was it did exacerbate the need for parts, but it also surfaced that the problems that stem from parts. Mm. First and foremost, equipment downtime and everyone is out to try to avoid equipment downtime. So it did open up that did bring this parts problem to the forefront of everyone's mind because people just simply cannot get the parts they need. Yeah, to get up and running yeah. but this is a perpetual problem right because of all the other things besides just the sourcing part which is a small part of what we do all the other things that didn't cover along the way mm. uh, so i don't know if it was good good or bad for us but i would say tailwinds for the business of course downturn downturn in the economy is also uh, headwinds for fundraising so it's mm-hmm. an interesting time to go fundraise yeah uh, but yeah. nonetheless yeah
2: it, it, what did you I learn from really
0: what did you learn from the fundraising process what would you what, what advice would you give the founders especially as you know now i mean i think i think we're we are in and depending on who you ask
2: mm-hmm.
0: it'll only get harder depending mm-hmm. on their tea leaves what yeah. did you
1: learn yeah. what did you learn about fundraising in maybe a challenging type of environment i'd say it goes back to the whole mantra of Are like you're going to do a little for a lot of people or a lot for a little amount of people the number one econ- like Economy proof, probably way to fundraise is customer champions. If you have cost, because as every part of diligence is, you're going to call customers, right? And you're going to call customers as a VC to understand not just what they feel about GearFlow, but also tell me about how big of a pain this is. Is this worth having a thesis around? Because you're evaluating deals, not you're not looking at GearFlow at another parts marketplace. You're looking at GearFlow, maybe some fintech company, and you have you can only make one decision totally different problems. And so I think having these customer champions and investing your time with these people had helped a lot. And then the other piece for us is like, it's fundraising is an iterative process, right? And then the number one reason why we got no's was because we did a bad job of succinctly sharing our value prop. The hardest thing to do it's not writing 10 pages about your business. It's writing one sentence about it. And if you don't get that across, especially when you're in a construction tech, which, you know, you're dealing with Sean, you're probably looking at deals across countless industries. No one human can understand the nuances of parts and understand the nuances of, I don't know, like s- swim schools. So if you are in a kind of vertical, then you have to spend a lot of deliberate and diligent time really practicing that value prop in the first even couple slides of saying what you do, why it's a problem, how you solve it. Because in, in a bad economic time, we got a lot of no's from generalists because they didn't know enough about the industry. We didn't have a billion dollars of GMV. So, and the economy was bad. So we're going to wait. So we got our traction from construction tech like, like brick and mortar because we could skip the. Education for the most part about the problem, but that's the number one piece. And we didn't early on, we didn't spend enough time on shrinking that down and making it succinct. So
0: we
2: lose people. Yeah.
0: Well, you just closed another round and you're off to, off to the races.
1: What, what is the, what are the next couple of years look like for Gearflow? What's, what do you yeah. see on the front? So our vision is we're going to get predictive with our parts. We're going to get out in front yeah. of what customers need before they need them right? Yeah. Yeah. The reason that that has not existed yet is all of this, again, you can't skip steps. Everyone wants to get predictive. It's one of these big, shiny words yeah. out there in construction, just like autonomous vehicles, just like electrification, just like net zero carbon emissions, all of these things yeah. people aspire to, but it leaves people with this big, deep, dark chasm that they don't know how to take the first step. For us, in order to get predictive, you need to try to get maybe even proactive. Before you get proactive, you need to probably at least get some sort of rules-based system or something. Before you do that, you should at least be able to show trends of how mm-hmm. their costs are. To show them trends, you need all of their activity flowing through you. Get all their activity your dealer's on, so it backs out. But our, our goal is we can, we can mitigate, if not eliminate downtime, by allowing us to predict when people need parts because we are now that source of truth data set, not just for the, a single customer's fleet, but across yeah. all fleets across the country. So we can start to to match behaviors across similar fleets. Yeah, it's right interesting because course. I think a lot
0: of when you when you when you read a lot of stuff about predictive analytics and things like that in a manufacturing setting, especially you, it's sensors and it's like things yeah. that are on the devices themselves and things like mm-hmm. that. And it sounds like you're able to go at it a different way because you have aggregate data sets. Is that
1: exactly? So the exactly. only answer to predictive in construction, but also elsewhere, is IoT.
2: Yep.
1: OEMs own the IoT data. It's up yeah. to them, right? Yeah. And they can only predict for their own machines. But yeah. with construction, you've got dozens, potentially, of different types of brands of machines. Yeah. So we yeah. literally, I, there's a customer that just re- revealed that he has 17 different portals that he logs into <laughs> to for parts ordering and telematics data, yeah. which is just crazy. And he's yeah. one guy trying to manage, a sh- he just tried to get parts. So for us, it's like, okay, what's a different answer to predict it? And yeah. to get predictive, very simply, you just need history. No one has history, mm-hmm. deep history across their own machines. Never mind similar machines on different fleets. So yeah. that's the direction I mean, we're going, and we're along those steps. Are you able to like capture now. data? Like, do you are you able to capture data around like runtime
0: and things like that, or like how did, how? Like, I would imagine that that's a, that's yeah. a variable. Like, are you running this thing twenty four seven, or are you exactly? There's okay. a
1: lot of variables. But there's a lot of data that these customers have that can help that they might not know can help. And that, like I said, the integration step at the integration step, what they capture at a work order level is the engine hours of the machine, all the characteristics, static characteristics of the machine, your make model, serial number, engine model, all the things about that machine, Mm -hmm. the location of that machine, what job site it's on, the utilization of that machine. So there's a lot, the operator of that machine, there's a lot of, things that are just inherently captured as part of their current process, but Which it's not being used for anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a form.
2: Yeah. So
1: we can start to port that in. We're not again, we're not going to sell them a predictive parts platform and you have to right. give us all this data. Right. It's a step along that that process. So there's a lot we can do there. And of course, adding in telematics, adding in these other things are are to enrich, add additional triggers. But man, we can tell them a lot about their fleet. And a lot about what parts they need with the basic stuff they're gathering.
0: Super cool. That's awesome. Well, Ben, I want to respect your time. This was really interesting. And again, like I said, it's been it's been super fun to to just watch your continued success. For for folks that maybe want to learn more about GearFlow or, or 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 you,
1: where yeah. should we see? Yeah. So because I'm in construction, I am also not invested any time in Twitter or Instagram or <laughs> right, that sure. stuff because no one yeah, looks yeah. at it. So right. uh, you can always, anyone can always email me, contact me via cell, but also LinkedIn. And then and awesome. before I let you go, Sean, I have to share one story that I've shared a thousand times about okay. you. Oh, so wow. the genesis of GearFlow. So you uh, uh, famously asked me, hey, Ben, can I use GearFlow as an example through SEM Rush to see what keywords are most popular in reaching Gearflow. And I was like, sure, because I actually hadn't looked at it, didn't know anything about SEO. Yeah. The number one thing that popped up, the number one search term, do you remember what it was?
2: <laughs>
1: Go ahead. <laughs> it was a it's a mechanic soap called Beaver Nut Scrub. <laughs> and with no context given about what gear Flow does or what we sell, they the whole class saw Beaver Nut Scrub and just whips their necks around and looked at me. I was yeah. like it's, contrar- it's, it's, it's soap. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> so I've told that story countless times, uh, love it. but I love it. Is that still
0: the case? <laughs> if you went into, if you went into SEMR You know, today? that,
1: that deal, no. there's a dealer that had a ton on their shelves and they actually sold like hotcakes. They sold out and they're, they're no longer even a supplier. So
2: amazing. Um, amazing. Yeah. That's super cool.
1: <laughs> but yeah,
2: awesome, this man. is
0: fun. Yeah. really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. And congrats on everything. ideas on how to disrupt your own organization and how manifold advisory might be able to help visit us at manifold.group slash advisory and if you're looking for a truly value-added investment partner visit us at manifold.group slash ventures if you found this episode helpful we would love a review on itunes spotify or whatever platform you use that's it for this episode thanks so much as always for listening we'll see you next time